0: welcome to the power of property podcast i am your host ellie mckay a property investor and developer and this podcast is for anyone who shares my passion for property whether you're a seasoned pro or just getting started i want to take you to the next level i'm going to be bringing you some real chat with some of the uk's leading property entrepreneurs who will be sharing wisdom and industry insights without any of the bs Property's absolutely transformed my life, and I know it has the potential to change yours too. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Power of Property, where I am actually joined by a good friend of mine, a female powerhouse, uh, very well-known and well-respected within the property world. It is the wonderful Cal Condola. Welcome.
1: Hi, everyone. Thank you for inviting me, Ellie.
0: Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. So, Cal, I know who you are. I know what you're all about. But for any of the listeners who don't know you, um, give us a little bit of your backstory, how you ended up
1: getting into property. Um, Just just a bit about you generally, really. Okay. Um, Believe it or not, I actually started in property back when I was 18, back in the dark ages. (laughs) Um, I started as an estate agent uh which was really good fun i enjoyed it um and that was a bit of a fluke because i had to go to canada to have my brother settling because my nephews weren't settling so i missed getting into university so when i got by the time i got back university had already started so i thought okay i'm just gonna take this year out and maybe get a job just you know chill out for a bit earn some money got a job in estate agent within six months i was the branch manager had a company car and I thought Do you know what i like this shit I like earning this good money about my own car. So yes, I want to go back to university because that was the done thing back in those days. You know, you finished college, you went to university and so on. So I actually went to university part time to do my first degree. And I thought, you know, I'd like this earning money. and spending it as faster, faster than I'm earning it. And um, what was your degree in your first one? Business and finance mm-hmm. and stuff. So I did that part time. Loved it. I mean, it was hard work, obviously trying to do that part time while I'm working full time uh, and there's a point there where I was actually working seven days a week as well because I was running a mortgage clinic on Sundays because my boss said to me right if you do mortgages if you open up on a Sunday I'll give you 20% commission of whatever you bring in on a Sunday so obviously I only did mortgages on a Sunday I didn't do them any other day of the week <laughs> after about six months he realized but by then it was too late we were on a roll so he. So um, yeah, so I did that for a bit. Then after I finished university, I took a year out to go and do my MBA at Keele University. I then went to start work for Lloyd's TSB as a financial consultant. Um, Then I met my husband, moved to Nottingham. And that was when I started to think about going back into property, to be honest, and back into just doing mortgages. I didn't enjoy financial services in terms of IFA, pensions and things like that Bored the living daylights out of me. Um, and I really enjoyed mortgages. So I set up my own mortgage brokerage and we went back into property. And the first property that Pete and I did was actually a lease option back in 1990. I'm guessing you had no idea what a lease option was. Yeah. I didn't realize that's what it was. (laughs) It was very creative when we set that up. Uh, but we kind of did everything on that property. It started off as a lease option. We converted the shop downstairs into an off license. I mean, it's me. What else would we do? You know, now I'll be drinking at wholesale prices. It works for me. So we did that. Um, We did a conversion on the apartment above, so refurb, converted it, extended it a little bit. We then did a title split, split them down from the upstairs. Before we talk about the
0: title split, just talk us through the lease option part. Like, how did that
1: come about? Yeah, so the property was really run down um, and it's on a high street in Nottingham. And Pete looked at it and said, Do You know what? This is in a really good parade of shops. There's no off license here. It's an ideal place to, uh, to set one up. So, what he did was he spoke to the landlord um, and he said, Look, you know, I want to take this shop on from you. I'd really like to fix it up and um, put an off license in there, but it's obviously in a complete mess at the moment. So, I'm not going to pay you rent for it for you know a period of time but what i want to do is obviously do it up but then that means me spending money so i don't want to then not be able to purchase it so can we do an arrangement where i buy it in three within three years as soon as i've got the money to do it and the guy was really nice it had been empty for six six or seven months and it was really going to rack and ruin so he said yeah do you know what that's fine i'm happy for you to do that so we took on the whole building agreed a price at that time um fixed it all up obviously put our money into it and i think we bought it within a year because within a year by the time we'd converted the shop uh or refurb the shop and then converted upstairs into a really nice apartment um because it was on two stories upstairs as well so we did a new kitchen new bathroom everything in there i had it revalued by uh, lloyd's bank because i still had my contacts there um and we managed to buy it with no money down Wow, the value was in there, yeah. So there's plenty of equity in there. Um, so we purchased it. Then we did the title split. Um, and the reason we did the title split is because we wanted to convert the, the flat, which was a big three-bedroom, two receptions. We wanted to convert that into a HMO because that was the same time that, you know, the Home Office were housing asylum seekers in Nottingham. Yeah. So I actually, that would work really well. So we turned it into a five-bed HMO. That was our first HMO.
0: My God, so like but
1: you're saying this as if it's
0: normal. You're like, yeah, we did our first property deal. We did a we did a lease option, which is creative. You split the titles, which is creative. Then you did an HMO, which is not for the faint hearted, having done lots ourselves, you know, it, yeah. it's very complicated compared to your, your Bob, Bob standard reverb. But then presumably you were also working with the local uh, authorities to specifically work with the asylum seekers, which is getting like,
1: so you're talking like four creative strategies in, well, in one. Well, we had a bit of insider information at that time because Pete was actually working for the Home Office. Yeah, so he was the HMO inspector. For- <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So a lot of the stuff on what he- should be in HMOs and how they should be set up was policy that he wrote. Mm-hmm. So that helped. <laughs> that does help. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then we actually, between us, we went on to manage for other landlords as well, up to four hundred HMOs in Nottingham and, and Derby for two years. So yeah, that was uh, an experience eye opening experience in terms of what can go wrong on properties and what does, especially. Okay, on let, let,
0: let, let. Oh I I love hearing these stories. <laughs> G-
1: give us some examples. Oh God. Um well we had one because because we were housing asylum seekers, um we had one property where we had uh, five males, so it's a five-bed HMO. Uh, we dropped the guys off. So what what the home office used to do was um send people in a coach on a friday night behind the showcase cinema so my housing officers would be there to meet them i'd have a list of who was going to be on the coach and people on the coach were never the ones on the list it was always you know we'd get a list of like a three somalians two Iraqis, four kurdish and what we'd actually get is a family with five kids you think okay i've got hmos where am i going to put this poor family so it was a nightmare in that sense because they they were absolutely useless But anyway, this one property, we dropped these lads off. Um, The next day we get a call from one of, I think it was Refugee Forum or somebody like that. Okay, how can you put people in a house like this? There's no fridge, there's no beds, it's just mattresses on the floor. Okay, well, when we dropped them off yesterday, there was a fridge freezer, there was a microwave, there was a kettle, there was a taster, there was beds, there was furniture, but somehow everything had disappeared overnight and obviously we were in you know so we had to replace all of that straight away Um, and we soon realized that we actually needed to have warehousing space to have these additional items because what happened was once the home office had taken the property on so once we were managing the property on behalf of the home office we were responsible not the landlord anymore Mm -hmm. so anything that was broken or missing in the property we would have to fix Um, And then we also soon realized, you know, obviously there's a lot of cultural differences as well. So we were providing kettles for for these guys to make tea. But with um, a lot of um, ethnic people, the way they make tea is to brew it in a pan. So they were trying to do that in a kettle, you know, put the milk in, put put the water in, the sugar and the tea bags, and trying to put that in the kettle. And then, okay, the tea's disgusting. Well, it's going to be disgusting because it's a bloody kettle. So then we realized actually do you know what we need to provide these guys with a milk pan so that they can actually make tea and everything so it was a learning experience um but yeah we had some we had some um service users who knew how to play the system uh, and we had you know some real real eye openers in in there in terms of uh, what they did to the properties which was terrible but you know after two years i've kind of you know i've had enough of it and said, right, this is not for me anymore. I want to get back into mortgages. And that's when I went back and set up my mortgage brokerage. And by then we'd had, we'd had Reese as well. So I wanted to spend more time with him because working in that job, it was almost 24 seven. You know, we could get a call anytime and I ha- we'd have to go out and, you know, investigate because the police were not actually allowed into any of our properties. If they wanted to go to interview anybody or, you know, check one of the properties, they had to contact us first so we had to be present Mm -hmm. Uh, it was yeah it was hard work it was really rewarding as well because some of the families that we helped and some of the people we helped were you know amazing really appreciated it um that was the first time i found out what a dvd player was actually because i did at that time this is back in this sort of back in 1990 no sorry not 1990 that was a long time ago back in 2000 yeah back in 2000 um we had a load of young guys arrive and the first thing they said is where's my plasma tv and where's my dvd player and i looked over like, what the hell's a dvd player and i was like i want a dvd player. <laughs> i had no idea what a dvd because i didn't really watch stuff you know we watched it once when, when you wanted to watch a film you went to the cinema in those days so i was like okay i want a dvd player because these are, you know obviously a bit more clued up on tech than i am so i went out and bought myself a dvd player first before i provided it for anybody else
0: so what, I to... what kind of um because it's obviously a lot more complicated i'm quite surprised to hear that you were responsible rather than the landlord did you get presumably you get paid substantially more than a, a normal management fee then yeah. for, for the service you're providing
1: yeah it Was well the, the service was everything was paid for by the home office obviously yeah so it, it, once the landlord's provided the property the landlord landlord would have a list of exactly what they needed to provide and it was on a five-year contract. So it was that it was like guaranteed rent. Mm-hmm. Um, a bit like a rent-to-rent kind of you know, agreement sort of thing. But then the Home Office were responsible after that. Mm-hmm. So anything we put in, we would then obviously just build the Home Office and yeah. they would pay for it. Yeah, okay. At the end of it, it's not down to the landlord. It's not his fault if the beds go missing overnight and the fridge disappears and the cooker disappears and there's a new <laughs> hole in the wall that wasn't there before because I'm just trying to- <laughs> sort of trying to get through into the living room for some
0: reason <laughs> you know what though it's it's um it's good to sort of identify the pitfalls though because i I do think that there's um like you say it can be extremely rewarding and, and you're helping a lot of grateful and appreciative families but there is obviously a a, a counter side to that and the, yeah. the shiny pennies, not necessarily when you start equating time for money and like you say almost being at uh, the, the beck and call 24 7 it's um You know, it's not for the faint hearted. No, yeah. I
1: mean, we we had times where we had families arrive in the middle of the night with young children uh, and we were were not expecting them. So obviously we didn't have anything in for them. So then it was like, okay, right, we need to run around the shops because we need to get nappies, we need to get milk, we need to get food. And because we had a young child ourselves, I was often having to come home and raid our fridge and, you know, the things that we had in the house for Reese. I'd have to take those out. So then we started to put you know packs together instead for families or so that we had emergency packs ready mm-hmm. and but you know it's it's one of these things you've got to learn quickly on on the on the job as such and think okay right now what do we do here we've got to do something because you can't just put a family into a house and they haven't got any of the things that they desperately need mm-hmm. so it's heart-wrenching in those situations you know seeing this young family arrive and um you know they've they've had to leave everything behind in their country. They're fleeing for their lives, and you want to make things comfortable for them. Then when they arrive, you want to you know you want to help them. You don't want to give them any more additional stress. It's hard enough arriving in a city that you, where you don't know anybody, you don't know the area. So what we used to do was we'd get them, get them settled in on the night, and then the next day one of the housing officers would go around to do almost like an induction. So show them where the shops were get them into the doctors, you know, whatever they needed, look at the schools for the children, all that sort of stuff. So we, it was almost like supported living in the end that we were providing a much Mm -hmm. fuller service because that's what was needed. How did you combat the language barrier? We had some translators and then we did the usual speak very slowly. Yeah. (laughs) You kind of, but a lot of people did actually understand um, understand English, so or broken yeah. English as such. So it wasn't too bad. But a lot of the ones that we had come from Afghan, they, um, some of them spoke a little bit of Punjabi and Hindi, which I could speak. So if it was Punjabi, Hindi, Urdu, I'd be called in to translate. But then we had a couple of other translators as well. And we had um, a phone service where we could phone up if it was any of the other languages. And we would just phone them up and then, you know, almost have like a conference call. Mm. So yeah, so the facilities were there. You know, we had to try and sort of make do as much as we could. But obviously, if you've got somebody that's arrived 10.30 on a Friday night and you can't get hold of any translators, it, it, it was difficult.
0: I just I just had, you know, what you say, it's obviously quite a serious topic, but just had this image pop into my head of my dad. We had a French exchange student over. I was probably like 14 or whatever, and they'd, they'd come with the school and stay with you. And My mum and dad can't speak a word of French. so you know, They probably did it... it up until about age 10 but dad would just be like he would just speak in English with a French accent you want a dinner you hungry I'm just like this you know just sat there as a teenager cringing you know that's kind of what we did
1: you know? <laughs> what else can we do in that situation you know it's just trying to walk, talk really slowly and just sort of you know hand movements and show them around a little bit you, oh, yeah. you know what's
0: interesting, though, because in property now, we, we quite often talk about the, the path of lease resistance and there, there's a lot of education. Um, I know that you've um, invested a lot in your own personal development and professional development, as have I. But back then, back back in the old days, Cal, it, you know, the, the, these strategies weren't talked about. You you were kind of, it, it, you really did make things um when I say difficult for yourselves, you probably, the the, the positive of the, the route that you took, both with your first development and the, the two years of experience working, you know, in, in, in that capacity as well, is you probably dealt with every pitfall, every barrier, every, every eventuality, which might take the average person 20 years in property to encounter yeah. some of these scenarios. You kind of had a bit of a
1: crash course in everything oh, yeah. that can possibly go wrong we learned a lot about plumbing in properties. <laughs> what, can, what can happen when somebody messes about with plumbing, with electrics? Oh, God, everything. Um, so after that, it was, you know, doing our own HMOs where we had students was like a breeze. Yes, you kind of, you know, it's half the time the students, they, they think of you almost like their mom. It's like, you know, well, I need this. And like, well, I'm not your mum. You need that. You need to find your mom. I'm your landlord. If there's a problem, pro- problem with the property, I will deal with it. Otherwise, you know, ring your mom or dad because they gave birth to you. They're responsible for you, not me. You know, I'm giving you a roof. You're paying your rent and that's it. But yeah, so after we left that and I went back into doing mortgages, that was when Pete and I sort of said, okay, what we need to now start doing is building up our own portfolio of properties. So that's when we started. Um, And then within my mortgage brokerage, I actually started to help my clients build up their portfolios as well. So I was almost doing like a mentoring programme without realising that that's what I'm doing. You know, I'm giving this additional service. People are paying me as a mortgage broker, but I was actually helping them because too, quite often I had people come in with, you know, quite a lot of money in the bank and say, okay, I want to buy one property. And I look at, well, actually, do you know what? With what you've got available, instead of getting a very small mortgage on this one property, we could probably get you three or four. Would you like to explore that option instead? And so I'd sit down with them, go through go through it all. Um, And most of those guys were just like, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, if I can do that now, this is what I want to do. But if I can do that now, and then in a couple of years, maybe do some refinancing and do something else, and you know, and build up my portfolio. So I've got quite a few clients that, over the years, they've built some very good cash flow um, portfolios. Um, and I've got one client in Scotland. Every sort of six months, he'd just phone up and go, Cal, need another one, get on with it. And that was it. <laughs> so I'd source the property for him. Um, if it needed a refurb, I'd get a local team in, I'd project manage that for him, and obviously do the funding as well. So a bit more of a service from a mortgage broker than you normally get. Were you charging for this? No, I wasn't. What an idiot, hey? Eh? <laughs> You're Joe. Oh. Why didn't I know you about this? <laughs> <laughs> such an idiot obviously i got lots of presents i got lots of bottles of champagne and i thought "Oh, that's nice but now i think back i'm like hmm i should have been charging a lot of money for that service i mean don't get me wrong i wasn't cheap as a mortgage advisor i charged a hefty fee but that was because as far as i was concerned you were getting a bloody good service well you were bloody hell. hell yeah not not like your average high street mortgage broker where they're very transactional that's the difference you know for me it wasn't just about this transaction not just about this refinance that you want or this mortgage it was about okay what can i do to actually help you with this and in terms of some of the properties when clients came to refinance them i'd actually look at the property and say well do you know what on that one you could probably do a hmo um i had lots of clients that had these three-story buildings because there's quite a few of those in nottingham and when i looked at them i said why don't you split that into flats instead So, you know, kind of did that. And I learned a lot myself by doing that as well. And that's the sort of things that we did at the same time as well. And then when we had the big market crash, uh, when everything just obviously went in 2008, uh, my mortgage brokerage just closed down overnight because the network I was part of, they, they went bankrupt. They owed me a lot of money because at that point I was a mortgage broker, but I was also a packager. Mm-hmm. So i was a satellite package packager for 10 other brokers so there's a lot of fees that i'd already paid out in valuation fees and processing fees expecting these mortgages to complete from you know the ones that we're packaging for all these other other uh, brokers but because we had to close overnight everything just went so i was owed a lot of money by the network but more worse than that was the fact that i just couldn't trade Mm-hmm. Because I had to close my doors. I, you know, the phone call I got from the compliance officer said, "Look, I'm really sorry to have to tell you this, but you just need to tell your staff to go home." So I had six members of staff at that time. I had high street offices. Said, "You need to close your doors and you need to leave now. The office. You are not. You don't have your license to trade anymore." So like, well, how can that happen? And uh, I said, "Okay, well, what do I do? You know, can I go to another network?" He said, "Well, you can't go to another network either." because you won't get a reference from this network because they've gone bust and um there's nobody there to give you a reference so you're gonna have to wait probably six months to a year before you can do anything so i was just like okay so it was just a matter of right okay close the doors go ahead door brandy sit down and think what the hell do i do now you know this is my business i've got six members of staff i've um I was in the process of buying another property as well. I've got lots of clients that are in the process of buying properties and I've just had everything, you know, the rug just pulled out from underneath me. So I sat there feeling sorry for myself for a couple of days. And then I phoned a friend of mine who was directly authorized. So he was okay. He was still trading. And that was my first joint venture. Because I said to him, I said, well, I've got clients. They need their mortgages sorted out. You're a mortgage broker. Let's work together. And it went on from there and then from there i realized that actually do you know what i don't really want to be directly authorized or with a network anymore i don't want somebody controlling me in that Mm -hmm. way i want to control what i do myself
0: Mm -hmm.
1: so then it was like okay i I like this arrangement with this guy so i would sit and do the financial strategy with with my clients and then he would do all the process in the advising the you know processing the case all that sort of all the boring stuff that i didn't want to do anymore And then I didn't need to have staff for that because that was his job to do that. And I could just concentrate on other things. So it was good in in that way for probably for about eight, nine months. Um, And then I had a really, really, really bad health issue because I used to have, because I've got problems with my back. I've got slipped discs, as you know, Um, but I used to have injections in my back. And the one time I went to the doctors, they injected me in the nerve. And that just left my whole left side paralysed. I couldn't walk. I just could not do anything. And so it was just, I just had to pretty much stop everything. God. I was in so much pain, you know. And I had two kids by then because Kyle was born as well. This was back in September 2009. And um, after about four or five months of being on, you know, all the medication tramadol gabapentin morphine everything because whatever medication you have after a while your body gets used to it and all the doctors were doing were just medicating me further so i felt like a zombie
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, you know just sort of sitting around lying around and that's not me i can't do that and uh, especially when i've got two little kids to worry about so for me i was like okay right well, i i need to do something with my life i can't i can't be like this anymore so when i spoke to my doctor and said look We need to look at what the actual problem is and how do we solve it? I can't not walk. Um, I need to be mobile. I need to come off this medication because I just feel like a zombie. I can't cope. I can't do anything with my kids. This is not the life for me. And he actually turned around to me and said, well, if you want to be mobile, you probably need to look at a wheelchair and adapt in your home. And for me, that was when the penny dropped because I was like, "Uh, no, that's your opinion. But I'm not accepting that, so I I was quite vocal in how I told him to get that of my house. <laughs> and take That's it. the cow
0: I love. Yeah.
1: But I also had to say to him, right, but well, lock the door and you know push the key back through the door because I can't get up. <laughs> you know, so please do lock the door when you leave. Put the key back through the letterbox and back off. You know, and take your prescription pad with you because I don't need it. Uh, I then phoned Pete. And said, well, I've thrown the doctor out the house. And he's like, right, okay. And now what? I said, now you need to get me a really, really big bottle of brandy on your way home, because I'm in a lot of pain. And then we need to sit down and talk about what we're going to fucking do with my life. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I just went on this holistic journey of trying every single treatment there was in the country. I went from, you know, all the way down south to all the way up north. My best friend, bless her. We put her on the insurance for my car because I couldn't sit up for very long. I could only sit for about 10 minutes and then I'd have to lie down. So I'd lie down in the back of my car and she'd drive me all over the country trying out all these different treatments. Um, And in the end, we actually went to somebody in Birmingham, um, somebody that my mom knew, who's a healer. And I kid you not, I do not know what he did. But I felt a big rush of pain and heat all along my left side. And he just said, turned around and said, right, now get up. And my mum straight away, and my best friend, got off the sofas to try and help me. And he was like, no, 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 she'll be fine. Because I'd come in there on crutches and with them helping me. And, um, and he was just like, right, put those crutches away because she's never going to need them again. And give her a minute, let her breathe, she will get up by herself. And I'm looking at my mom, going, just get ready anyway, (laughs) just in case. And she's like itching to try, try and come and grab me. But I just listened to him and he's just like, look in my eyes, just slowly breathe and get up. And I did. I took a couple of steps, And, you know, for me, that was just like, I can't believe I've got my life back. I'm actually walking. And we got in the car, we drove back to my mom's house and... What i told my friend to do was park on the road and not on the driveway i said i want my dad to see me walk up the driveway and my dad was in the you know in the doorway in in the porch and when i got out of the car first he sort of rushed forward and my mom was like no 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 you stay there wait wait for her and when i got out of the car and i started taking a few steps towards him i will never forget the look of you know a surprise on his face and the tears i'll never forget those tears it was just amazing that you know Like, I'm tearing up now just thinking about it.
0: God, I I am. It's emotional.
1: It was really, really crazy because he was just like, you know, because my dad is my biggest fan, always has been, and he's my hero. Uh, He passed away now, but, you know, to me, it's like he's still here. He's still part of, you know, what we do and everything. He's still driving me every day kind of thing to do more with my life. Um, So for him at that time, I think it was as hard for him as it was for me for me being like that because he, he couldn't cope with it either and then when i phoned p and i told um uh, reese was on the phone as well because reese is only little at the time and uh, and first thing reese says, mommy are you walking i was like yeah i'm walking i can walk again he's like right come home quickly you know i'm in birmingham they're in nottingham i said yeah i'm leaving uh, nanny and nana's house now and i'll be back in about an hour which takes an hour to get from my mom's back to our house and my kids actually stood in the porch the whole hour from when i spoke to them on the phone Pete, Pete kept saying to them Look, it's going to be ages and reese was like no 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 i just want to stand here i want to see when mummy comes and so as soon as we pulled up on the driveway my kids are just standing in the porch just waiting and uh, you know i'll never forget that but when i thought about it afterwards if i'd listened to the doctor at that time if i'd gone into that wheelchair you know what would have happened to my life i would have probably still been in that wheelchair now all these years later you know but it's for me that wasn't 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 going to happen obviously but i think about a lot of other people who probably could get the right treatment out there to help them but they haven't been able to because they've been told by the experts who we expect our gps and doctors and everybody to be the experts in our health issues as such they've been told that no you're not going to walk again we we hear of this time and time again don't we
0: because not not many people have i mean funnily enough i was just randomly it's a completely different situation but but i was telling somebody the story about when i had my first daughter and basically the way that the, the the midwife was treating me she wasn't listening to what i was saying and and latterly, I found out the the my, my condition, if you like, sounds a bit dramatic, but but was quite common. But because I was a first time mum, I didn't have the confidence to, yeah. to to challenge the person of authority. And you know, they, it, it was it was not, nothing terribly serious. Whereas what you're talking about is 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 potentially people accepting uh, resigning themselves to never walking again, and yeah. and that's that's life-changing you know that that's quite a devastating blow and i appreciate people you know make, make the boat the, the most of their situations and people have very filled fulfilled lives in wheelchairs so so i i don't mean that but but you're yeah. talking specifically about accepting a fate that doesn't necessarily need to be like that but do you think was that because of you mentioned your dad, and you know, I know how much of a, a force he's been, um, you know, in in driving you. Do you think that was because of the resilience that he instilled with you, that confidence you had, or w- was it something else?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, and I, I, because growing up in an Indian family, um, most Indian families they treat their sons differently to their daughters. And with my dad, it was always you no, know, my daughter can do anything that any of the boys can do you know and he was always like that because I, bo- I was actually born in India and my dad you know landowner he loved his farm and everything he didn't want to leave India because I've got two older brothers it was fine when they were born but as soon as I was born he was like right okay now I need to make a change in my life because I can't stay in India now that I've got a daughter I need to move to the UK or Canada or somewhere where my daughter's going to get the right education and the the opportunities in life that she won't get here Now, obviously, things have changed a little bit in India, but obviously in the villages, it's different. In the cities, it's a different lifestyle. Villages, it's different. But, you know, I'm 51 now. So back in that time, it was different. You know, most of the girls didn't get the education. You know, most of my cousins were married by the time they were 18 or 19 and resigned to a life of just being somebody's wife, daughter-in-law, that sort of thing. My dad always said, no, my daughter's never going to be that. Somebody's going to be her husband somebody's going to be her mother and father-in-law and she's going to rule the roost wherever she goes so for him to make that change in his life and leave everything he loved behind in India to come to the UK and and settle here and then bring us over and you know you know give us the life that we've had and he always pushed me into education more so than anybody else and I remember the times as soon as I got to sort of 17 and 18 when all the marriage proposals kept coming every time we went to a wedding or a function you know the next day the phone has start ringing oh you know would you want to introduce your daughter to so-and-so my mom would like no she's at college she wants to go to university her dad said fuck off she's oh. like, married my dad would like put the phone down Put the phone. <laughs> he was He'd he's like no she's not married some dipshit that you know you guys have found at some wedding or something leave her alone she's got a, she's got a career to think about so my dad was always like that he always wanted me to have the best in life uh, but he always taught me that if somebody says to you that you can't do something you show them how you can and that was it for me oh, when yeah. doctor said to me that i wouldn't walk again i did say to him i said i will show you i will walk again and i'll walk into your office and i did a couple of weeks after that after you know i was okay again i, I went into his office obviously we changed doctors by then I did go in to show him that i was walking again what was his reaction he was surprised he was very surprised um and i said to him i said in future when you say something like that to somebody else think of me and then think about whether you should be giving that advice to that person or whether you should be looking at how you can help them to overcome their illness you know because i hadn't had a massive accident it's not like i've lost a leg or anything you know It was something that happened, they'd injected the nerve. I mean, I could have obviously taken legal action against them for that anyway, right, for negligence, but I didn't. And I said to him, I said, you know, I could have ruined you for that. But then you further tried to ruin my life by telling me that there was nothing else I could do, when you hadn't even looked really. All you did was just pump me full of uh, medication. Mm -hmm. And that just doesn't help. But, you know... The years, of, yeah, exactly. I've met lots of other people that you know um that have had similar sort of stories to me. There's a lot of people that you know are, are in pain on a day-to-day basis. I mean I am, don't get me wrong, I'm I am in pain on a daily basis, but at least I'm walking, at least I'm living my life. Mm-hmm. You know, well, and if there's bangra music on, then I can't feel any pain anyway, because then I'm just dancing. The pain, angry works, music and a few like, gins and you're oh, fine. Then you're okay. If, if it's a wedding, I can dance for hours. I might not get up for two days afterwards, <laughs> but I always allow for that. But, but you must
0: have felt like the bionic woman after that. You know, you made the impossible possible. And, and that's something that you very much bring into your professional life as well, isn't it?
1: Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And I think it taught my kids as well, was you know, about resilience. Mm -hmm. as well and about being strong and being strong in your beliefs as well Mm -hmm. and and that was the first time that i realized that actually your mindset is so important and that's when i got onto this whole mindset journey as well i read lots of books like the power of now uh, and also the power of no because i'm one of these people pleasers and even though i couldn't bloody walk i was still offering to do things for people like seriously what are you doing you're stuck on the sofa you can't get up but you're offering to help people you know, you're an idiot. But so I, I learned all these things. I read The Secret. Um, and then I just went on this whole, like I said, holistic journey, doing lots of meditation. I was constantly on my laptop, learning new, new things, um, having webinars with people in Australia and everywhere. It was just amazing. I was just like so engrossed by all of this. And then that was when I realized, okay, I've got this little bubble around me in where I am, but I need to increase. I need to look at meeting different people because everybody I meet, I learned something different from them. There's no point just sticking in my little bubble, but it was also at that time that I realized, cause obviously like with, with what had happened, I couldn't work anyway. So the mortgage business obviously had sort of, you know, died a death as, as such. Um, I told my clients that, look, I can't do any of this, anything at the moment. And, but we still had an income coming in from my properties. So although all these things had happened, you know, the year before my mortgage brokerage obviously had closed down, I'd lost a lot of money, I'd sort of picked myself up and found another way through a joint venture of doing things, but then I had the health problems. With all these things, most people, if that happens to them in their lives, they're at a stage where, okay, they can't pay their bills because they've got no income coming in, but we still lived in the same house, I still drove a nice Range Rover, we still, you know, could have the holidays we wanted, we still had things in because we had passive income coming from properties and that's when i realized actually those are really important yeah so the few properties that we've built up in in our little portfolio why are we not doing that on a bigger scale because that's what's paying for us now yep. and that yep. was when the penny clicked that actually you know that's what i need to do so that was when we sort of started looking at okay what else do we need to do and then we went back into doing uh some more commercial conversions um converting properties into apartments and keeping those and then Pete just went on this journey about uh on um about eco products sustainability because he said you know this is something for the future we're going to do something we need to do something different don't do what everybody else is doing things are going to change you know we see the climate control climate change and everything as well and building methods have got to change. So he's very passionate about eco homes and low carbon homes. So he just went on this long journey of trying to find the right people to work with, to develop a, a build system that really works. And that's what he's been doing for the last six, seven years. And now, obviously, as you know, we're at this stage now, we are actually building eco houses. Yeah. So we've gone on this long journey all the way through. And now we've got some amazing projects going on um but by doing the networking events that i did by being part of you know the progressive and everybody else that i've met i've learned the power of networking and i know mm-hmm. you talk about that a lot as well yeah i mean that's how we've met isn't it you know yeah Otherwise, I, would, I would have never met you i would have never met all the people that i'm working with right now it's amazing but we we don't realize the value and the power of that
0: I'm always banging on about it. Relationships are the highest form of currency. And I I I think you're right, because within our our own social groups, um, I I don't know about you, uh, and I've still got a load of my my, my pre-property friends, if you like, but um, the... the, um, it, it, it's also quite refreshing because sometimes you can feel like a bit of an oddball when you're an entrepreneur, you, you sort of you, you you think a little bit differently sometimes and uh, it, it's nice to be around, because I always say you've got to have a bit of a screw loose to do what we do because yeah. it's, you know it, 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 I I think as you've demonstrated from some of your stories, it's absolutely not for the faint hearted and you know, the bigger you get the bigger your challenges get, so, yeah. so now you're working on, you know, multi million pound developments and building your own eco houses i think it's just your, your tolerance and your resilience gradually increases as as the you know as, as the zeros go up but yeah. but do you feel uh, i mean you, you talk a lot of uh, about values and, and things like that do, do you just is that always been something that's been at the heart of what you do because obviously from working with the asylum seekers to now the the the, the eco stuff that you're doing um you, you've always sort of Brought heart into and soul into your transactions. Is that intentional?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's part of what I've always done. Um, so within within my uh, religion, my culture, as a Sikh, um, a lot of what we do is in terms of helping other people. You know, we always say look after everybody around you. Part of our teaching is it's not just look after you know your family, but look after your neighbourhood. So because that's important, wherever you live, you've got to be loyal to your where you're living and the people around you. So little things like, you know, teaching my kids that in the winter go around the neighbours, especially the elderly, make sure their driveways are clear, see if they need anything, you know, things like that. We've always done things like that. But my dad taught me a lot about um helping others as well. So obviously with us living in the UK, my dad always did a lot for people back in India. Mm-hmm. Especially girls, because my dad was a big advocate of, you know, educating girls and giving them the opportunities. So whenever he could do anything, he would help others as well. So because of that, I've that's been a big thing for me as well. So within the networking events that I've done, um, it's been more about building a community around mm-hmm. me rather than just I'm doing a networking event. You know, and we just got a couple of speakers and everything. I genuinely want to help everybody that's in my room because I think that's important. So we try to get to know people. Um, And when we when we first started, because we used to be my oldest son, he used to come to the events with me and run the registration desk. So his job was if we've got anybody that's coming for the first time, talk to them, find out a bit more about them, what they're looking for, and then try to make sure that they actually speak to the right person during that day so that they're actually getting some value from being, from being there. Yeah. And that's where you're going to get people coming again and again. And you know, like you say, being an entrepreneur and being on this whole journey, family and friends don't really understand it. Mm-hmm. I have, I have so many times in the past been told, why don't you get a proper job? You know, you do all of this, you're running I'm like, what the hell is a proper job? <laughs> you know, What's a proper job? Yeah. Like, working for somebody else that, first of all, I'm unemployable anyway, right? Yeah. Me too. Yeah, who would want me in their office on a day to day basis, especially with me rolling up at what, 11 o'clock? <laughs> I tried to. This is so funny. This is so
0: true as well. When we were picking in this, uh, we were, were sending a few WhatsApps, went to book Calend. I was like, how about 10 o'clock? And she was like, can we do 11? Because I don't really get up before then. And I thought she was joking. I'm like, sending laughing emojis. And she's like, no, no seriously. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't get up at 10 o'clock. But you're a night owl. Yeah. And it exactly. works. Yeah. So but you know, I, actually, Cal, I think that's quite important because don't get me wrong. Like, we're, we're, I'm into personal development. I know you're into personal development. And I, I know so many people that are ridiculously disciplined and structured. And they're, they're absolutely on, on on top form. They get up at the same time every single day at 4 or 5 o'clock. But you know what? The, there is also uh, to counter that people like cal like my friend jacqueline like myself people that, that may get up at slightly different times every day may not have a rigid routine but you know what we have a, a list of non-negotiables and they get ticked yeah. off every single day yeah
1: yeah it doesn't matter what time you get up it's what you do when once you're up that makes a difference
0: it it, it absolutely does yeah. but Talk to me a little bit more. I know it's it's not specific to property, but I think it's you know that this is about you as well and and who you are and sharing a bit about your story. And, and you were talking there about the, the the Sikh culture and looking after your community and the, the sort of values that you're now instilling into your own boys. But um, you, you're also um, or is it an ambassador or a, a co-founder of um of a charity that's doing some phenomenal work as well? So uh, if you want to, to yeah. talk
1: a little bit about that, would be brilliant. Yeah, so um, one of the things my dad used to do um, was um, provide bikes for girls in India, so in the poor, poorer villages. Because when once the girls would get to a certain age, the parents didn't want them to go to high school because the high school wasn't in the same village. It was probably two or three villages away, and the parents didn't want the girls going on the, on a bus to school because, well, you know, I'm sure you have all heard the stories of things that happen in India to young girls. So it wasn't exactly a safe you know safe for them so what my dad would do is provide bikes so that two or three girls could be on bikes together and take that journey together to the school and get their education and, and come back home safely um, and at the time I didn't know why he was doing that I just thought okay dad's just buying bikes for people in India anyway you know, whatever, he would just say to me, right, send this money, to so-and-so, send this money to so-and-so, I was like his little PA, in his, in his little accountant, and I'd just go to the bank, do that for him, because my dad couldn't read or write English, so it was just, I had to do all those transactions for him, but he used to go to India every a couple of years and, and, you know, and do various other things there as well, but then a few years ago, I came across um, something called 88 Bikes, this was when I was at um, an event run by Matt Siddle in Knightsbridge. And Dan from the founder of 88 Bikes was there, and he was talking about um, what they do. Um, the reason it's called 88 Bikes is because at that time, when they first set it up, it used to cost £88 or $88 to provide a bike for a girl. Now, these girls are in places like Cambodia where they were sex trafficked, but they've been rescued from that. And in order for them to continue either with an education or get go to work, they need to have some sort of transport. And that transport that these guys provide them with is a bike. Now, you wouldn't think how life-changing that can be for somebody. But when I was listening to him um, and he actually said, he said, you know, there was a time where they went to, to this girl and they gave her a bike. And what they do is, like, so if you sponsor a bike for a girl, they will give her a picture of you to say this bike is from so-and-so. And they will take a picture of her and send that to you so you know who you've endowed that bike to. Um, And he said, he said, you know, the the most common thing we get from these girls when we give them the bikes is they burst into tears. And everybody's like, ah. And he said, no, no. He said, the reason they burst into tears is not because we're giving them the bike. It's the fact that there's somebody out there in the world that they've never met, that they probably never will meet, but has thought about them and thought about how they can help them to, you know, have a better life. To do something that's going to impact on their life yeah. now for me i was in tears when he said that you know because we don't realize how much of an impact we can have on somebody's life by just doing the smallest thing you know a lot of times we think oh if we're going to do something charitable it's got to be really big it doesn't something like that can change somebody's life and it's nothing you know for us 100 pounds is nothing it's like, it's, a, it's like obviously it was 88 then it's about 100 pounds now So for £100, you can make a massive impact on somebody's life, right? Why wouldn't you do it? So we're setting up a foundation now here as well, Liz and I, with Prosperity Group Global because we're doing a lot of different things in it. And what we want to do with that is support 88 Bikes in a much bigger way, um, but also look at other things that we can do to help people, um, especially in terms of education you know but some of those schemes we actually want to do things here in the uk as well because you know like you i'm very much into looking at mindset looking at self-development and personal development but for the entrepreneurs of the future as well in this country Mm -hmm. we know what the school system's like Mm -hmm. my kids have been through the school system i mean the younger one's still going through it and you know he's pulling his hair out every day he has to go to school he's counting down the days it's like a prison sentence he's counting down the days when he can be only 16 and he finishes school but you know we know what the school systems are like they're not fantastic they're okay but for anybody that's entrepreneurial they they do fail them so we want to look at how we can actually help the entrepreneurs for the future as well so lots of di- different things we want to do and that's where the foundation's coming in so if anybody wants to know more about that obviously just get in touch with me but if you do want to help these the girls with 88 bikes just look up 88bikes.com well i think that's our 88bikes.org if you look that up as well uh, some amazing information in there about what these guys are doing uh, what i'm going to do soon is i'm actually going to do a um like a zoom interview or something with dan and mm-hmm. talk about how people can get more involved in in what he's doing uh, and also you know, how they can get more involved in the foundation that we're we're setting up as well. I love that.
0: You know, you know, I'm a huge fan. So, so anything I can do, anything the listeners can do to to support the great work that you're doing um, when the foundation's you know going through its launch, we'll get you back on and we'll um, we'll uh, we'll we'll make sure we we get you as much coverage as we possibly can. But Cal, you know, there's just so much more to you than property. You're definitely. Uh, a woman on a mission. Um, I, I absolutely um, love what you're doing. Love what you stand for. Love your no bullshit attitude. Um, we were just saying that in an industry that's dominated by men, I feel like the, uh, the the tides are turning, aren't they? And I I think we're so loud that we we can deafen ten men
1: with, with voices, can we? It's funny you say that because all the networking events that I do, so when we when I've got a male speaker, I have to give them a microphone or tell them to speak up. Because I'm okay, you know. When I speak, the whole room hears me. But the guys, they're awful.
0: We 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 don't need Zoom, do we? We just need a megaphone. I'll just shout to shout to Nottingham. Um, but yeah, it's um it, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um,
1: where can the listeners find you, Cal? Uh, I'm all over social media. So I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. Uh, it's just Cal Candola. Just you know the one and only yeah have a look at there, or you know come to one of the events come and meet us and come for a curry for with us afterwards because that's what we tend to do at my networking events oh and that that curry house you took me to is phenomenal i
0: can highly recommend in fact we need to get that back in the diary we we, we need to stop doing the zoom and we need to start doing the curries again yeah let's do our next podcast at the curry house (laughs) that hey that's an idea we'll do that well it's been an absolute pleasure and you would be thank you're you. an absolute superstar cal and um, i hope the listeners get as much value from this as i have you're a legend thank you Speak take soon. care bye. bye that concludes another episode of the power of property if you've enjoyed today's content please make sure you leave a review subscribe to the podcast and share it with anyone you feel would get value from it it really does make a difference